0: Welcome to No Picks After Dark, Baltimore Sun's best podcast of 2020, voted by you, the listeners. No Picks After Dark seeks to build a community based on human experience, storytelling, and conversation. Now, your host, Aaron Dante. Welcome to the No Picks of the Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. Today, we have a very, very special guest on the podcast. I mean, this person is blowing up all over my social media. Everywhere I look, I see this person's name. I'm like, who is this person? Who is this? I mean, she's doing big things. I mean, the community, I haven't seen as many people just rally around somebody like this in a long, long time, especially in Baltimore. And, you know, I'm just like, I had to get her on my show. I really do. And Without further ado, Ms. Franca Mueller-Paz, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Hey, I appreciate you coming on the Notepics of Dark podcast. And could you please tell everybody, give a little background, okay, what are you doing in Baltimore City first? What's the big thing that everybody's, I see you on my social media. Let's talk about that. And then let's talk about a little bit about you. So let's, let's, that's twofold. Go ahead. show
1: well so i'm a teacher i have been teaching in public schools for the last 10 years right now uh i am a teacher at baltimore city college so for the city people out there city forever but we got love for everybody and i'm also a representative in my teachers union so i've been elected for three consecutive terms to to represent teachers within my school and fight for them their behalf and for our administration and also uh, for issues that impact teachers across the city and across the state
0: uh, and what's and what and you're running for something all right
1: i am <laughs> yes that is also something i'm doing <laughs> so i am running for city council for the 12th district uh, and i'll be on the ballot on november 3rd so super pumped about that
0: that's a beautiful thing that's a beautiful again i see her this everybody's a really excitement. I haven't seen this much excitement in Baltimore City in a long time um, for her candidacy. So tell the listeners a little bit about why are you running for ball? Why are you running for a candidate? Like why, why do that? Why get into politics? I always ask people that. I mean, then your whole life is out there. You have no more privacy. I mean, why, why do that? Why would you want to do that?
1: Yeah, totally not something that I thought I was going to be doing. I, I love being a teacher. I love being in the classroom. I love organizing from the point of my classroom. But I think this is a path that really started when I got here to the United States. So I immigrated here from Peru. There was some political turmoil happening in my in my home country, which was Peru. And so my mom and I, uh, we left when I was a baby and uh, met with my dad, who was living in, in Patterson at the time. So we we moved in with him. And as I started to get older and get closer to being school age, my dad started to get really nervous. He was concerned that, you know, what would it be to, you know, have me go to these schools that had such a bad reputation? There was some drug-related violence happening in our neighborhood. And so my dad decided to make a big lift and move us to a neighborhood just a few miles away. So that I would have the resources that he felt like I deserved in school and also be able to walk home safe from school and all the things that really like every child deserves. Uh, But when he made that choice, that came with some serious sacrifices. So I really grew up never seeing my dad. My dad worked day shifts and night shifts uh, in construction. And uh, he was always struggling and my mom helping out as well to make sure that we could uh, pay the bills that we wouldn't be evicted from, from our home. And so I think, you know, there was this recognition at that time that why do you have to sacrifice everything, like time with your kids, uh, your your body having to do this like super intense work that my dad had to do as, you know, being a part of construction. Why do you have to sacrifice all that just so you can get what we would like to think that kids deserve, which is a, a fair shot and a fair opportunity. And so as I grew up, you know, a lot of my life still uh, was very much anchored in Patterson. I uh, I started learning folk dancing there. Uh, I, I'm a folk dancer now. That's one of my side hustles. Uh, I dance traditional music from Peru and Mexico, uh, but I would go there to you know learn my traditional Peruvian dances to engage with my culture. A lot of my dad's work was there. Uh, a lot of our family friends were there, and it just as I got older, it just was so clear and so, and it became so obvious how messed up it is. Like, wow, like your zip code really determines that stuff for you. Uh, The kind of struggles that you guys are having over here are so different from my struggles just a few miles away. And so when I uh, was in high school, I began, you know, like working together with other uh, students of color trying to do what we could from our space. I was a Girl Scout. Shout out to the Scouts doing our thing. Uh, and I thank them because that's, you know, a big part of how I was able to pay my college tuition was uh, work uh, scholarships that I got from community service work that I had in high school. Um, <clears throat> But then I came to school and started organizing with Casa de Maryland, trying to organize uh, laborers who often can't be unionized or really hard to get them those kind of uh, working protections because of their documentation status. And from there, I went on, became a teacher and started to use my classroom as a place to fight for those things. So uh, I fought a battle to try to unionize my charter school when I briefly taught in Philadelphia, came back here, have been working with students and the teachers union to try to fight for better school funding, for digital access, for fair opportunities for our students to uh, be able to access the quality and uh, highly selective high schools that we have in the city. Uh, And there just came a moment with all this work that I had been doing uh, last fall, where I said, "Where are our champions? You know, we vote for these people, we get people into office. Like, why aren't they not fighting for us? Why aren't they at the school board? Uh, why aren't they out here at these hearings talking about, you know, what we need?" And so, after some, you know, really, you know, uh, wonderful conversations with my students and fellow uh, union organizers, we decided that. We needed to, to make sure that in this seat, in the city council, that there was going to be a champion uh, for students and families and workers. And so that's what brought me here today. So here we go. Let's do this thing.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that story. I really do. And there was something that you said in your story that um, stuck out a little bit to me. Um, now, I could be wrong. Are you a first generation college student in your family?
1: I am. I'm the first okay. person, yes, in my family to go to college.
0: What does that mean to you? What does that mean to you and your family?
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, my parents are super proud uh, that I was able to go to college. And 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 to me, I always had this like reckoning where I'd said, if I if we never had left Patterson, would I would I have gone to college? I don't know. You know, there was a social pressure in my school where there were so many people. And there was a public school that were expected to go to college. It was just, it was the thing you did. It wasn't this like hugely celebrated thing. And so I always thought about that, that like, what if I, what if this wasn't the place that I grew up? What if I grew up where I started growing up uh, and graduated from co- you know, school there? Like would I have graduated high school? Uh, would I have gone to college? Would I have left out of state? You know, all these questions just because what did it mean where I was living? Uh, And how did that impact my opportunities that I had growing up as a person? Um, So it meant the world to me to be able to get to college. and, And actually, I started thinking that, and I think this is something that a lot of Um, uh, black and brown first generation kids feel, which is like, I got to do something really fancy. Like I made it, I have to like show off for my entire family now. Like I'm carrying the torch for everyone. (laughs) So I actually thought I was going to go into neuroscience. (laughs) Okay. And um, until uh, I met, I met Zeke, he's the first district council person. And he was uh, a couple years older than me. And I was doing a lot of organizing through student government with him. And he convinced me to teach a poetry class when he began teaching. Uh, and he was teaching over in Sandtown Winchester at a school that doesn't exist anymore called George Kelson. And so I started teaching a all-young women's poetry class there. And then when he's taught in Cherry Hill, I, I taught this after-school program there, too, that I created with the students. We made it together. And Uh, And then I just knew that that that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be locked up in a lab all day. I wanted to be around young people because I thought their voices were so powerful. Uh, And that if people could just hear all their super astute, super lucid interpretations of what's happening in the world, like there's no one more critically conscious than a teen like in Baltimore. I just feel like they really know what's going on, and it's just about making sure that they have the spaces to share this incredible knowledge that they've built just as young people. And I, and I really wanted to be, be a part of that. So um, thanks to that experience, I it was uh, a little different from the journey, the way it had started when I went to school.
0: All right. That's okay. So let's get into a little bit. You're in the green party. Now I'm going to skip around a little bit. Yeah. When you're growing up, was your family uh, Democratic Republican? I mean, that was a two party system for a long time. Uh, what, were you, what was your household like? Was it uh, what was it growing up?
1: Yeah, my parents were really different. So my mom, uh, we, yeah, you know, in Peru there was a massive uh, oppression of free speech and thought, and so my mom was really scared to talk about politics ever. Um, and she's actually really blossomed and uh, and really become a much more political person than she really would allow herself to be. And, and and she would tell me that you know I have this fear, I have this fear that I'll say something and then I'm going to end up in a cell somewhere and someone's going to like. And I kid you not, she told me, like, is someone is going to be taking off my fingernails because it's something that's up, something that happened to someone that she that was really close to her. And so my mom was really scared to be political. Uh, my dad, on the other hand. He had been a military guy in Peru. And so and that wasn't really the life meant for him, but he, he, he needed like some financial independence. And, and the way to get that was by being in the military. So he went into the military when he was 15 uh, years old. Yeah, crazy stuff going on. Uh, so he went into the military as a 15 year old and uh, he saw what it was like to be on the repressive side of what our government was trying to do. And and that's ultimately one of the reasons that he left Peru uh, is that he was being forced to uh, go to student protests and stop them by any means necessary. Uh, And, you know, uh, he didn't want to be a part of that. And he also had people, uh, his friends, that were in in the army with him that would go to break up what they would call like terrorist cells in the jungle. And they would come back crazy because they had been forced to commit like crimes against humanity. Right. Like, and so my dad was like, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do those things. I don't want that that to happen to me. And so um, he got out and, and he came to the United States. So my dad is super political. I think like that really radicalized him. So my dad's always been super left. Uh, he's always been like uh, very against uh, the use of police power because he saw what it was like to be on that side. And, and he was just disgusted by it. And he really feels like you have a choice, you know, like you don't have to take orders. Like you can leave if you want to. Uh, and so I think he really, he, he really feels really strongly when, like, these um, uh, incidents pop up where, you know, uh, police commit these horrible crimes and abuses. He's just like, you know, they don't need to be a part of that. Like, they could have gotten out long ago, and they chose not to. Um, so they need to be, you know, um, their crimes need to be handled for real. But, yeah, that, that's my dad's story. So my dad always read the newspaper, always knew what was going on, and so I definitely... Uh, love talking with him about politics since I was a little kid. (laughs) Thank
0: you. I'm I'm just, like I said, I'm painting a picture right now. It's painting a picture of you and just, you know, know, and um, just so the audience can understand background and everything. So I guess, how did the Green Party come to you? Like, did they come to you or did you find them? I mean, I I did, again, I told you before we started, um, I did an interview earlier this year with a Green Party representative and I didn't know I had so many friends. That were in the Green Party, I did not know. I have friends reaching out from California, Colorado, all these different states, and I'm like, I didn't know. I mean, again, we didn't, we don't talk about those type of things, but they came out and said they loved that episode. How did the Green Party come to you, or did you go to them? How did this marriage like make it? How did this happen?
1: Yeah, I think it happened because for me, because I felt tremendously lost and disappointed in the Democratic Party uh, I'm a Latina. And when I was so, 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 so excited, uh, uh, went and like, I uh, did, a I don't know what they were called at the time. Cause I'm thinking like Bernie journeys, but like I did a, I did a, I did a Barack journey <laughs> and went to Pittsburgh for a GOTV, you know, all this stuff. Um, I was so excited and, You know, so much of that was like, oh, my gosh, you know, we're going to do so much for immigrant kids and immigrant families. Like, we really stand with you. We're behind you. Like, let's do this. Let's get, you know. And our our community was super mobilized and energized to get him elected and then to see so many people deported um, to see what's happening at Burke's uh, family detention center. Not too far from here in Pennsylvania, where there are cells that have crypts in them. Uh, cells where, where babies are are meant and allowed to be, um, you know, a kinder form of family detention than what we see under Donald Trump. It's still a form of family detention and, you know, what we're incarcerating children um, and infants. Um, and they were during that time. Uh, and also to have parents ripped away from their kids and sometimes being taken in front of Schools, you know, and so much, you know, it's something that's affected my family, it's something that's affected my close friends. And so, when uh Hillary was running, I, I had a really hard time, like, not like, teasing her apart from that. Like, I felt like a, a lot of harm had been done, and that a lot of promises had been made to our community, and, and I felt kind of used. Um like oh, you know we we did all this work to get you in office, and then like the most deportations ever you know uh that was that was soul crushing um for me, and so uh that's when I began to really want to look towards one more progressive candidates, but to also see you know like maybe there's another way and another place that you know I can call home as a party um and that's when I became green curious. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice, nice. So, okay, we talked a little bit about that. And you work in uh, Baltimore City. I do. Now, I read something about you were involved with a situation with, it may have been you, I don't know, about kids trying to get into city high school. Yes. And with the language barrier, Correct
1: yep yes so I,
0: I did my homework today you did surely did today. wow
1: that's and an I, old article I,
0: I, right i don't. i don't even do my homework i didn't even <laughs> do my homework in high school so i don't know how but um there was an article that so along the lines of what you're talking about right now uh there's an article that came out about how you had latinas latinos uh coming at, that were in grade school in middle school trying to get into city high school um Give people a little background about how hard it is to get into Baltimore. I have audience outside of Baltimore. Give people a little background. How hard is it get into the city and poly high schools and how hard it would be if it's not your first language as English?
1: Yeah, I'll talk about it through a story of how middle schoolers respond when they find out where they're going to go to high school. So okay. there's a ton of great high schools around our city um, with incredible legacies, but there's definitely this like huge, huge for a student that is super academically driven, who uh, is like really fired up about going to college. There is a huge drive to want to get into city or poly, which is one of the oldest high school rivalries and oldest public schools in the nation. Um, And and, and they're incredible schools that offer tremendous opportunities. Um, They are schools that to me are like rocket ships to success, right? You get tons of support for applying to college, tons of support for being able to get scholarships, all this support to be able to really like uh, have a super strong resume um, as students uh, apply for the college process. And so, you know, I was, I was talking with one of my students about her friend and I said, you know, what was it like when you found out that you were going to get into city? She's like, well, I was super excited, but I was right next to my friend when she found out her composite score wasn't gonna be enough, she, she just broke down crying and she said, I'm not enough, um, there's nothing for me. And that's coming from like a 14 year old, right? So I think one, uh, there's a lot that we need to unpack there. You know, We need to make sure that all the schools in Baltimore are somewhere that our students feel really proud and excited to get to attend. All these schools should offer the opportunities that students need. But we can't deny that when you go to City, you go to Poly, there is a college acceptance rate that is just sky high, right? It's like over 98%. Um, and then there are schools that it, it's much lower um, and have also like drastic dropout rates uh, compared to City and Poly and Western and uh, and Dunbar and some of these, you know, highly selective schools that we have in, in Baltimore. <clears throat> and so what we began to realize as organizers of immigrant students, these are students from the Middle East, um, from China, from, uh, from Latin America, they realized, wow, you know, where are the ESOL students? We keep hearing that this ESOL population is growing and growing and growing. Like, where are they at? They're not, why aren't they here? Uh, why don't we have any students that are receiving ESOL services? And so when we dug in to what was going on, we realized that it was the process for how you get in. And there is this test that you need to take. So there's a formula that decides whether or not you're going to uh, get into city uh, or poly or one of these highly selective schools. And as a part of that formula, there's a standardized test you have to take. And that standardized test is in English. So if you just arrived as an immigrant student and maybe you've been here three, two years, you could be Einstein, but if you speak Chinese, you're not going to City or Pali, right? You're you're gonna go you're gonna go somewhere else. And in all honesty, there is certainly like a funneling process of sending kids to certain schools because that's where they have more um, eSOL support. So we thought it was really important that all students be uh given fair opportunity, and that we shouldn't be restricting where students get to go based on language. And we even consulted the ACLU, uh, and one of their lawyers said, like, this appears to be in violation of uh, of the rights of students, because you cannot bar a student from an uh, educational program on the basis of language. Uh, So we really started to go to go hard at this about three, oh God, four, almost four years ago, um, trying to fight so that students would have a fair shot. And actually, we won a tremendous victory this past spring where now uh, and for the time forward, if you have been here three years or less in the country, you have the right to a translator to take that test with you. So that you can really show your ability in math and you can really show your ability in reading comprehension not based just on what you're able to like wrangle in understanding because it's not a language that you speak but really being able to showcase what they're capable of uh and so yeah we're super we're super proud of that win um but it's gonna take a lot more work there's still a lot to be done
0: <laughs> thank you so much I, I i wanted I really wanted to get that story in here I I'm, I'm ask you that question uh. Because I thought it was very, very important. I really loved.
1: Yeah. And if I could add, you know, when we were going through this process, we uncovered that there's a lot of groups that are left out and marginalized um, from being able to attend these schools. So that includes students that have specialized learning plans, not well represented, given the proportion of them that are in city schools, and then what you see present in these highly selective schools. Then students that experience homelessness, very, 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 very small uh, portion of them make it into these schools. Students that come from middle schools that are located in areas of concentrated poverty. Um, It is insane. There are parts uh, of the the, the school system where over 90% of students at a given middle school will get into a highly selective school there are parts of the school system where 5% get into a highly selective school. And that is totally driven on lines of race and class. And so as a part of this work, uh, SOMOS has also been pushing to make sure that we need to examine what's going on there and change this process so that it can be more fair and equal to all students to have a fair opportunity to attend these incredible schools.
0: This episode of No Picks After Dark Podcast is sponsored by the Charm City Craft Mafia, Baltimore's best local craft fair, presenting Holiday Heap, a virtual craft show the first weekend in December featuring handmade stationery, apparel, jewelry, ceramics, wall art, body care, small batch food gifts, and more crafted by makers in Baltimore and the region. Holiday Heap is Friday through Sunday, December 4th through the 6th. More at CharmCityCraftMafia.com and on Instagram and Facebook at CharmCityCraftMafia. The digital divide. Since we're talking about it, we're talking about it. We're staying on those lines because you are talking about it a couple seconds ago. Digital divide. Uh, You and I spoke before, got on about the Taco Bell incident that happened in California to uh, two students uh, that couldn't, afford wi-fi and how to use taco bell you've been outspoken and and out for your with you, with you saying about digital vibe comcast can you explain a little bit about some of that's part of your part of your platform
1: yeah absolutely so uh this became a really big passion for me because uh as soon as we started and I, and you mentioned that your partner is also an educator so i'm sure you know they also struggled with something similar that as soon as we brought these classes online, I was like, oh, like, you know, Houston, we got a problem. There's like, Mm -hmm. I have a class that's supposed to have 35 kids in it. And there's three in this, you know, in this Google meet, you know, there's something really wrong here. Uh, And as the days went on, I was like, where are the students that never miss school? Students that are never late to class, students that turn in every assignment, like where did they go? Uh, And what we started to learn is that a lot of these students didn't have the tools to be able to get line period. And when we looked at research done um, that was showcased by the ABLE Foundation in May, we found out that uh, it really breaks down online's race. So when it comes to like broadband internet, which is nice, stable, more high-speed internet access... Uh, over 70% of white households have access to broadband internet, about 54% of black households and, uh, or sorry, 50.4% uh, percent of black households, and then 46% of Latinx households. And so when we look at this problem, you realize that, man, if we don't get internet to kids, one in every two, you know, black and brown children are not gonna be in our classrooms starting Tuesday. Uh, It's just not, it's not happening. And so when all of their education is based online, That means that one in every two black and brown kids is not going to get educated and they have a constitutional right to receive a quality education. And so this to me was like paramount. Like it doesn't matter how amazing my classroom experience is if there isn't actually a fair opportunity for students to be able to attend it. Right. So. We started getting to work uh, and grinding on, you know, getting this done. So we uh, really pushed City Hall. We won three million dollars from City Hall to address the digital divide. Um, uh, BTU put a, a Baltimore Teachers Union put a ton of pressure on the school district, saying like, "This is urgent. You can't wait. Buy the devices now. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go." Uh, give up all the district, you know, give up all the the devices that are in the schools, and that's what the school district did. Like every device that wasn't nailed down to the floor went out to families. Right. Uh, that's going to be really complicated when you come back to physical school eventually, but you know, we'll, we'll solve that problem when we get there. And then we were like, okay, you know, we're trying to, you know, get all these devices into kids' hands, but you know, what good are they if they don't have internet? So we started trying to work with Comcast and reaching out and saying, Hey, like, uh, you have this internet essentials program. Uh, we've been trying to connect a bunch of our students to it. And you know what? It's not fast enough. Um, so the, the speeds that Internet Essentials uses, which is a low income uh, program that Comcast provides for for families, uh, they just up their speeds during the crisis. And they, and they really want to be like applauded for uh, upping their speeds during the crisis. Those speeds were set as the minimum qualification for, like, quote, high speed broadband Internet by the FCC. Five years ago. So why did it take this company a whole pandemic uh, in five years to finally catch up to what the threshold has been or the bare minimum has been for high speed internet? Um, you know, I can't, I can't answer that for them. But so uh, we came to them and said, like these were considered high speeds five years ago. You need to increase the speeds. The way that we use the internet has dramatically changed in five years, in five months <laughs> because of COVID. Um, and they're no longer enough. And what we see is that kids every day are having to ration out internet with their families and, to figure out who's gonna get online. So one of the organizers in, in SOMOS, uh, Students Organizing Multicultural Open Society, a group that um, got started in uh, in my classroom with the support of a couple other educators six years ago, You know, she has internet essentials and and that's what she has to do every day. And she says, you know, it's either my parents get to be online and do the work that they need to do to be able to put food on the table or, you know, me or one of my sisters gets to be online. We can't all be online at once. There can only be one person or it just doesn't work. And so we have been saying to Comcast, like, can you please make this modification? And they have been totally unwilling. Um, which I think is disgraceful because this is the best second quarter during COVID. They've had in 13 years in new paying customers. Uh, and despite that, and despite all the profits, like billions of profits that they've made during this quarter, uh, they're unwilling to just increase the speeds which costs them nothing in infrastructure. The infrastructure is already built You can just increase the speeds. All they lose is one more tier that they get to put on their website so they can make more money off of us, right? So I think... Um, it's a huge problem. And as far as like a candidate and a policy, like we got to bust this basically monopoly that Comcast has that allows them to bully us around with prices, with speeds. Uh, And we need to start working towards municipal internet because like after an entire summer and spring of doing it, like I'm already tired of trying to grovel at the feet of a corporation to try to make sure that they have, you know, a conscience. Um, so I think we got to, you know, got to cut them out.
0: <laughs> no, no, that, that, that was, I, that you gave me some information. I didn't even know about Hopefully, my listeners are like, wow. Okay. That was, that was, that was deep. I appreciate
1: that. Yeah. yeah so mean, if you thought you hated Comcast before.
0: Oh, I mean, you brought it back to, I was thinking to myself, like, damn, like growing up when I was like, my parents are on the phone. I couldn't get an internet. And so if somebody, if I was on the internet and somebody called, it kicked me right off. So that's what, that's what it brought it back to me. It was yeah. like, that's when you were explaining that, I was like, Oh man, I remember, I remember those days, and now I understand a little bit better and clearer what you are fighting for. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate you explaining that to everybody. Okay, so we're going we're going to move to District 12 here. We're going to move to District 12. Okay, we're going to talk, see the what's heart going the on. Hard is, is the heart of the city. So, how can you attract more businesses to District 12?
1: So I've been talking a little bit with some business owners around the district and something that comes up really frequently is that there needs to be support for young entrepreneurs, uh, that that's something that's really missing. At at the end of the day, it's other small businesses, often like black owned, that decide to take new businesses under their wing and uh, basically godfather them until they get on their feet. Uh, And that's coming out of just like the kindness of people's hearts. Uh, But we need to have something that is in our city's infrastructure to make sure that people who want to go in and start a business have the skills to do it. Because I think it's really important to think about who those entrepreneurs are. There are kids that just went through our Baltimore City School system. And we know that in our student population, there has been tremendous lack of uh, systemic access to wealth through redlining and all these different things. And so a lot of them like don't know what the process is like, and maybe even their parents or their grandparents don't know what the process is like to get a loan, like a mortgage loan, let alone a loan to be able to start a business or to, you know, buy a property to be able to get your business started or to get the initial financing you need to start a, start something. And so, I think it's really important that we have to realize where our young business, you know, men and women are at and say, all right, a lot of these students have not grown up in a household where they necessarily got the education around personal finance that they needed. Uh, Right now, it's not even a requirement in high school, which is something else that we have to change about, like, really teaching our kids how to manage finance. But we have to accept that that's the reality, which means that we need to really coach, like, from, from the moment that, you know, someone's showing like sincere interest and wanting to get a business started till they're, you know, a couple years in and have some, you know, like firm ground under them, uh, how we're going to support them as young businesses, because I think we really just leave these guys out there in the cold. And if someone doesn't take them under their wing, like one of these more established, like I said, often, you know, black minority owned businesses, um, they're really out there just trying to fend for themselves. And, uh, In, in the time of COVID, that is going to be a a very hard task for our young businessmen and women.
0: Okay. All right. So how have the community stakeholders embraced you when you announced that you would be running as a candidate? I mean, you're running against the candidates already been there for a while, but how has the community just in stakeholders embraced you? And how have you gone out and embraced them and tell them that you were there for, for them?
1: Yeah, it's been really exciting. So Like I said, like I was not thinking that I was going to go into politics. It's not something I had planned. It more felt like a necessity, (laughs) Um, especially uh, when, you know, we had some really solid progressive challengers in the primary and, uh, and I was really, uh, you know, rooting for them to take it home and it it didn't happen. And so that's when I was like, all right, like we got, someone's got to do it. Let's just, you know, let's do this thing. And try to fight it out in the general. Uh, But I feel like I've been really embraced by uh, by teachers, um, which are huge, you know, community stakeholders in our city, Uh, the vast majority of donations have come from teachers. Uh, We have had some really great endorsements coming up lately. So I've been endorsed by the Sierra Club, by Sunrise Movement Baltimore, by Baltimore Women United, Uh, excited for others that are going to come up, even by uh, congressional candidates that really got some exciting um, progressive energy under them like Michaela Wilkes. And so uh, they really embraced me. And then I would go to I went to. The different candidates, you know, that have run uh, that had run in the primary, you know, this uh, in 2020 or had run in 2016 in the general and, you know, said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about running, I want to get advice. And often I was calling for advice or something and they're like, all right, yeah, I'm endorsing you. Uh, Let me uh, tell me where I can donate and I'll send a check. And I was like, well, like that wasn't even what I was calling about, but thank you. So and we brought in a lot of folks that have been former uh, primary challengers or candidates in this race. And they're and they're a part of the team and they're helping to lead the ship. and, And it's been amazing. So I feel like we've built a really strong Uh, 12th District Coalition. I really loved getting to meet with community associations and um, the warm welcome I've had from community members there. Uh, And I, you know, uh, to me, a super valuable and strong contingent of our city is our youth. And a lot of our campaign is led by youth. Uh, Three, I like to call folks, you know, campaign managers. I think it's really important for folks to have like a really serious and important title in the in the campaign. So we have three (laughs) to do different, uh, to have different sort of focuses that they do within the campaign. And they're all former youth organizers uh, that I worked with when they were teens and saw all the incredible stuff they were capable of when they were like 15, 16 years old. And now they just graduated college or uh, in the process of wrapping up their college education. And so they've been really exciting to bring on. And I, I hope they will be the next generation of, you know, political, Uh, strategists and politicians in the city to come, Uh, but they have really, you know, um, brought a strong voice and that's why we have a lot of youth in our campaign too that represent different organizations. So uh, yeah, I've I've been feeling really embraced and and it makes me feel, you know, better and stronger about taking this decision to run every day. All right.
0: All right. I like that. So how would you promote to families that, that are living or think about living in District Twelve; is a great place to raise families. I'll always go back to that because, you know, strong communities—that's that's what it's all about. Strong community associations, families. How do you tell if I'm a constituent and I'm living there, and I'm like, I have to move to District Three? They got better schools over there. That's where I live. So, but yeah, but well, no, I'm just, I'm just yeah. as, as an example. But same But how do you keep those good families? and saying, hey, don't move here. Don't move. Stay in District 12. We have some things going on that are great, that are coming up, and we are really, as a candidate, how do you, how do you tell that? And then how do you tell people who maybe want to move into your district, to that district? How would you go out and say that?
1: Yeah, well, I love District 12, so I've uh, been living here since 2013, and then I've been in a Baltimore area since 2006, Uh, So I was like District 12 adjacent. Actually, I might have even been there back when I lived for a couple of years that I rented in in like 08 or something. But anyway, uh, I think it's an incredible place to be. Right. There's a lot of a lot of energy. Uh, It's the center of the city. So all the heart of transit is located in District 12. So I think. You know, for people especially that say like, oh, like I like I like to travel, get around like being able to uh, access the light rail, being able to uh, access our Penn Station and being able to take the mark, being able to get on the Amtrak. Like I think that's a huge draw for folks that say, you know, whether it is that they want to be working in other places and living in Baltimore or they just love the the possibility to be able to like spend uh, a day in D.C. or New York or what have you. Like, I think that's something really special that the district offers. I also think that there is just a really, you know, vibrant, artistic uh, soul in the city. Um, A lot of incredible places where you can hear some of the best music, right? There's Terra Cafe on 25th Street, that whole strip on North Avenue that is really an anchor uh, for artists in the city. And so I think, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a district that has a, a lot of culture, a lot of soul, uh, and a lot of opportunity to be able to get around.
0: That's nice. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about it. You're definitely right on that. You're definitely right. Um, so what are your top three opportunities and challenges you would think for a district if you were to be elected? What would the top three opportunities and challenges going in the next five years you would just look at
1: as a candidate? Mm. So I think a lot of these opportunities start as challenges. (laughs) So I'll I'll kind of interpret them that way. So one is definitely, you know, winning this fight to see like the need for municipal internet. So I think there's an opportunity here. I think we've recognized as a city that we really need it. We need it to be a 21st century city. There's other cities around uh, the country and also in Baltimore itself, or sorry, Maryland itself that have shown that, When you bring in municipal internet, it can be really good for business, really good for local economy. So it's happened in Chattanooga, Tennessee, even in Easton, Maryland. Uh, So I think that's one. Another is that we need to look at what's going on with our public safety, right? So there is a huge uprising that has been taking place in our city for years, demanding that we really take a hard look at what it means to keep our citizens safe. Uh, And so I think there's a huge challenge to make sure that we can get do the organizing conversations and build the relationships we need so that uh, Baltimoreans see the need to really do a full transformation of what our public's uh, uh, safety system looks like. But if we can get Baltimoreans on board, I think there is uh, a tremendous chance that we have to say, all right. You know, we've been trying this way of like policing ourselves out of crime, um, policing ourselves out of uh, the struggles that uh, people in our city are facing day to day. There's so many of our neighbors here in the city that are are just trying to survive. Like they don't have the chance to thrive in our city. They're just trying to make it day by day, and so we're trying to police our way out of a lot of the consequences of that. And it hasn't been working, right? Our homicide numbers go up. The clearance rate on these crimes is going up. Uh, and so I think there is a, a chance here to say, all right, what do we think are the real root causes of these challenges in our city and the crime and the hurt and th- that takes place? And, and the hurt is real, right? It's robbing us of people. It's robbed us of students. It's robbed us of... Um, you know, people that we hold dear and cherish, um, you know, even, uh, luckily I haven't had an experience where a direct family member has been affected in, in Baltimore, but, uh, in my family, I had an uncle that was living in Queens, New York, and he, and he was killed in his, in his storefront. Right. Um, and when we talk to people about, you know, how much money often gets, taken when there are these robberies that end in death. And there was a really tragic incident earlier, this incidents earlier this year, which uh, you may have heard of, right? which were two mothers being killed in front of their children, um, uh, two mothers, entrepreneurs, uh, great staples, you know, thinking of staples in the community that were, were killed in front of their kids. And when, and when I ask how much money is often stolen in, in situations like these, and it's like a couple hundred dollars, you know, it's not. And so people are making desperate decisions. So we need to make sure that we are doing active preventative crime work to ensure that people have the financial opportunities that they need to be successful, are learning the skills that are required of them to be able to really participate in the 21st century economy. We need those things. Um, We need jobs for our youth. We need rec centers for our youth. So they have other options that they can turn to uh, and mentors that they can turn to when like, you know, um, these uh, decisions come knocking at their door. So I think we have a huge chance to make that turnaround. Um, And as a part of that, uh, a third opportunity that we have is that, and, and part of it is sitting in Annapolis right now, is that we need to fully fund our schools. Um, we have a chance right now with the Kerwin bill to really bring a more just uh, equitable school formula to Baltimore City, uh, but the city's not off the hook. Like the state has to do their part, but the city has to do its part too. And right now we're looking at a situation where our budget for education is about 15%. That's everything. That's like, uh, that's, that's everything having to do with educating our kids. And in the rest of the state, the average that a district spends out of their budget is 36%. So we need to be fighting not just for Annapolis to make sure that they make the right calls, like open up this session and veto, you know, do a, a veto override uh, on Kerwin so we can get money into our school system from the state but our our city's responsible too. And I think that uh, it's really important for us to, when we're looking at these conversations and hearing the word defund get thrown around, like we've been defunding education for decades. Our our, our school system is already defunded. (laughs) So I think it's really important for us to look at reprioritizing so that we can make the financial decisions that uh, really lead to... uh, our, our future citizens, you know, our, our future leaders in Baltimore, our residents, having the dignity that they deserve when they live here in Baltimore. Um, so those are three challenges, but opportunities that we have coming up.
0: Great, great. Okay, So in two sentences, if I'm on the fence right now and I don't know who I want to vote for, tell me why you are the right choice. Tell me why when I go and do my Mail in, or I do, where I, I wait in a two or three hour line to hit that button, what makes you, I'm on the fence right now, the candidate, I mean, as, not, as a voter, why should I vote for you?
1: With me, you have a chance to put a champion in that seat. I've been a champion for students, families, workers for a long time, uh, and that's what I'm going to keep on doing if I get elected. Oh, that's your chance. Yeah,
0: All right. Chance. <laughs> All right. So now, now you're off the hook a little bit. Now we're going to get you on the rapid fire. We always do this with everybody. Rapid right. fire. Okay. We're this ready. is where you can lay back a little bit, relax, you know, not sweat. All right. What inspires you every day?
1: Uh, my dad. He was your, a really hard worker. And
0: yeah. Your favorite author.
1: Ooh. Ooh. I'm on a bell hooks tip right now.
0: Okay. 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 Your favorite musician.
1: Mm, let me think. Violeta Para. She's okay. a uh, radical Chilean musician uh, that I absolutely love.
0: All right. Fa- best crab cake in Baltimore.
1: Oh, I'm a big fan of Bo Brooks. I like that. You know, you get to see the ocean and the big tower. That's uh, where I like to take family when they come to visit.
0: <laughs> okay. Best brunch in Baltimore.
1: Oh. Ooh, that's tough. That's a tough one. You can you um, can
0: name two. You can name two. Uh,
1: you know what? I love like Water for Chocolate uh over by Patterson Park and I just think that chef is amazing and and he just makes you feel so welcome. Love that place.
0: All right. <laughs> the 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 mystery question. Flats or drums? <laughs>
1: <laughs> i told you this question i was like what uh, uh, i i vote boneless i like hate food that makes me feel really messy and i feel like i can't like eat wings without like getting like every, not just like around my mouth but like on my ear and forehead and stuff like i just need it clean it's <laughs> so <solid. laughs> they hook me up with those boneless wings
0: <laughs> favorite city to visit
1: uh i really like chicago okay.
0: favorite local beer
1: Ooh, favorite local beer. Um, can I pick mead? I like mead. They're in the district too. I so. knew you were
0: gonna ask when well, I was I was hoping you stayed in district. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. What is so the we- best advice you have ever received?
1: Hmm. That you're never too old to to do something. Um so I uh never had really been an astute guitar player or anything like that. But I started with a group of uh, women friends of mine, a band four years ago, and a lot of us had never played anything. And, um, and I think it's never too late. You can always learn and you can always create something beautiful, uh, whether that's knowledge, whether that's a skill, whether it's art, Uh, it's just never too late. Um, It's never too late to become an expert in something that you wanted to do. Never too late to try to, Um, change the root of your life. Uh, And I've really carried that with me a long time.
0: All right. So now this is time to plug, where can people find the social media, the Twitters, everything. I mean, uh, TikTok, I don't know, whatever everybody's doing nowadays. And also I wanted to give you kudos to you. I saw some numbers that you raised, I could be wrong, 50K since you've started? Is that correct or wrong? Am I wrong so on that? We're
1: actually up a little bit right now. Oh, so hey, that's,
0: a, that's, a, that's an even better thing. Sorry. So there you go. There you go. A little bit more.
1: Yeah. So uh, we closed out the month of August with over $56,000. Uh, right. And for us to be on track for our fundraising, we needed 40. So we like finished up with 16K more, which felt pretty good. Uh, we also... If you include in-kind contributions, we're at over $60,000. We have 954 individual donors uh, donating to the campaign. Uh, And we have uh, over 270 volunteers working with the campaign.
0: That's nice. Nice. So where can we find you? Where can we donate? Where can people find out a little bit more about you, your platforms, and all that good information?
1: Yes, so they should go to francaforthepeople.com. You can sign up to donate. You can sign up to volunteer. Uh, So please check it out, francaforthepeople.com. And this fight is not easy. We are fighting against an incumbent. We're fighting against an entrenched democratic machine. So we really need all hands on deck. So if you can help out, make some calls for the campaign, doesn't matter where you live. You can send texts for the campaign, whether you're in Baltimore, you're in Albuquerque, you're in L.A., Uh, You can help and we need donations to help this work. I pay a family sustaining wage to everyone that's a part of this campaign. And so to be able to pay the wages that our staff deserve, to be able to get the mail out there, to be able to get the lit, uh, all the things that we need to do uh, really depends on our ability to raise money. So uh, check us out, francaforthepeople.com.
0: With that, folks, we're out. Thank you for coming on the No Picture Dark Podcast. You're off the hot seat now.
1: Thanks, Aaron. <laughs>